I just had a brainstorm for something fantastic. This Thanksgiving, discover how to be a fantastic fox. Ride in style. Goggles. Wow. Dress for success. I don't have a bandit hat, but I modified this tube sock. We look good. Yeah, we do. Always be prepared. What's the master escape plan? From the studio that brought you Ice Age and the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I'm okay. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Rated PG in select theaters November 13th. Everywhere for everyone. Thanksgiving. Alright folks, welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway, where the points are just like a great spam recipe. Um, this week we watched Fantastic Mr. Fox. As always, I'm your co-host, Josh Page, and with me, my co-host and friend, Steve Molina. Hello, welcome, hello Steve. everyone. Are you ready for a fantastic episode? Uh, Steven, I've been feeling fantastic all over the place, so I am, I am ready to get fantastic today that's, that's fantastic that's fantastic um yes we've 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 hit quite a milestone here we are at more than the halfway point i think last time was last week was the halfway point it was and look at us now yes. we've moved on to the animation phase of i was gonna say we have we have upgraded we have gone from live action actors to stop motion actors not only that we've hit the uh Oscar portion of Wes Anderson's career. Um, um, up until now, he oh, had not yes. been nominated, and look where we are now. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums? No, no nominations? You might have gotten a... I don't remember now. You should you probably read. do your homework on that before you lie to the audience. <laughs> You're right. It got nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but this is the Fuck first yeah. of the string was the first of the string of uh oh, nominations man. all right from well, here on in it's all nominations um yes um what well, well, from here on out it's you mean every movie from here becomes more of a, a Academy, uh critically acclaimed yeah after uh, this Oscar every nominee. movie has been nominated this got nominated uh moonrise kingdom got screenplay Budapest got Best Picture nominations. Now, before we jump ahead, because we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, was Fantastic yep. Mr. Fox nominated for Best Animated Film? We do you want to just jump right into it? <laughs> oh, I mean, if you have if you have notes on it, I just don't recall because I mean, we could talk about the Oscars now and then backtrack into the first time we watched and everything. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. it got two Oscar nominations: uh, one for Best Animated Feature and one for Best Original Score. It lost both. Uh, what, it it lose, lost, uh, what what Pixar movie did it lose to? Up. Uh, I mean, controver controversial opinion, but I would take this movie over Up. Even though Up is, you know, it's incredible, of course. And those first, whatever they are, six minutes are more of a, you know, like all the memes. It's more of a heartwarming story than any romance you could ever see. You know? My, uh, I have a hot take on that movie, too. I to me, it's in the same vein as uh, Saving Private Ryan, where the first part of the movie, it's amazing, but it never recoups from the from that first part because of so how amazing it is. So but uh, the other nominees for Best Animated Feature, up one, we said, Coraline, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Princess and the Frog, and The Secret Keels. 
that's a pretty good year for animated films. Yeah, two stop motion animated, two Disney, and one random one. I don't, I don't know what the secret keels is. I uh, was almost thought you were flubbing uh, to say the book of Kells, but that's a that was years later, I think. Uh, yeah, this is different. I don't know what it is. Uh, uh, anyway, for best original score, of course, the Oscar went to Michael Giacchino for Up, because of course. Wait a minute, Up won best score as well. Was Hans Zimmer uh, busy that year? Was he? He was nominated that year. The other at nominees were uh, Avatar, James Horner, Fantastic okay. Mr. Fox, Alexander Desplat, The Hurt Locker, Marco Beltrami, and Buck Sanders. I don't, okay. Yeah, I don't even remember The Hurt Locker score, to be honest. And Sherlock yeah. Holmes, Hans Zimmer. Oh, that's a very... I mean, it's a, I, it's a very fun score that's a very entertaining and unique score i can see why it would not i mean that's not hans's most notable but it's an extremely i can hear the notes in my head of the yeah, i don't know what kind of guitar it is oh it's good song. it's dun, good dun, 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 dun. yeah and then it, it just like explodes into dun 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 yeah it's a very memorable score see hans is like uh he's like john williams in that way where he you can immediately recall the music where I can, oh no, I can, never mind. I can hear the up music in my head as well, actually. Yeah. Uh, whatever, man. I got, I got no more hot takes from me. I can't, uh, I'll be honest. I can't remember the Fantastic Mr. Fox score, so I understand it losing that one. It's true. It's true. We're kind of giving the argument that. Uh, but, you know, best uh, animated feature, it's up in the air, you know, which was also nominated that year. Which was? Up in the air. Oh, how uh, how I was astute just making of you. a pun. But was it really? It was really nominated that year. Up in the air. It was nominated that year. Well, this was the year that uh, Hurt Locker won Best Picture when many people were very sure that Avatar would win Best Picture. Yeah, they talked themselves into believing Avatar would win when um, there was no way that it was ever going to win. And I will say that in hindsight. Um, I don't say Avatar should have won. No, 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 God, never. I'm sorry. Jeez, Jesus, we're recording. I, but I, in hindsight, that I, I didn't love Hurt Locker when I first watched it, but in the in the years having re- seen it, I've only seen it a couple of times, but um, it, I feel that that was the, that was the the, the the good choice over if it's that or Avatar. I mean, it's that. Yeah. But um, but even mm-hmm. up in the air, I've seen since I've seen since is also has also grown on me. You know, I don't remember everything that was nominated that year, but my hot take of the ones I remember is that oh wait a minute, District Nine should have won. That District year. Nine and Inglorious Bastards were nominated. Oh never, man, never, never said ever. All right, let me revoke my statement. We can scratch all this for the record. Uh, Inglorious Bastards and District 9 just fight it out to the death and I'll take whoever wins. <laughs> oh man, an RIP to Neil Bloomkamp's career, right? Oh man, Chappie Died really... with Chappie. Oh man, that's a weird hill to die on. <laughs> oh, oof. Oh man, so, RIP uh, to the uh, Alien 5 that could have been. Pour one out. Oh man, um, from what I hear though, they are working on a District 10. That's not a joke. There's like rumor that a District 10 may somehow metastasize well at this point it's been more than 10 years which makes me feel old but um that's crazy but uh anyway but anyway josh tell me what was the first time you watched fantastic mr fox 
Well, Stephen, since you asked, um, I did. I did. When I was on my journey in Your college, journey. Mm -hmm. my my journey in college in watching Wes Anderson films, after having had my experience with my family watching Royal Tenenbaums and them not being impressed, I think I've heard uh, this story before. I've mentioned it, and and having been in college and going through Wes Anderson's films as a college person in chronological order. There's a time where I came across this film, Fantastic Mr. Fox, had, you know, watched by myself in my room with my headphones on, uh, <laughs> like I had with many of the other films. And I don't quite remember the experience, but that's, that's how I remember watching it. Um, and yes, that's all I, that's all I have to say about that. What a, story, what a story, Josh. What a story, Stephen. What a story. And I, and I will save all my feelings on that experience for when we get to the final thoughts, which will be later on. Is that but how this works? That is, I think after a little while, that's, I realized that's how this works. So please do tell me about your, uh, your pop cherry with Mr. Fox. Uh, I believe I've already told the story because it was oh, yes. the first Wes Anderson movie that I had watched. Uh, caught it on the telly. At a certain point, the old telly. Uh, the old Sorry to any British listeners, I can't do an accent. Um, <laughs> what's He's it trying called? his best. No, this is good because this yeah. is your first. This is your. This I'm was sorry, the you, first you, West. Like I said, uh, you have an I saw story. part of Royal Tenenbaums on an airplane once, but my first full Wes Anderson movie was uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. It was on TV, and I watched it in my room in high school I want to say and it uh sparked my interest in Wes Anderson afterward you know and there's really nothing more that could be said it's not that interesting of a story um I mean because you've said the story before I don't know if we have it on record in which case you can scratch all the following but it's you had said something interesting about that rings true with me whenever I watch this movie is that when you watch this movie something clicks with you because you recognize that it's an animated film. You recognize that it's a film that looks like it's geared towards children in the sense of just visually how it looks, but that you were saying how, or what episode you said it, that you picked up on how- I think that was the first episode we hit on Wes Anderson. But you had picked, you said how you had picked up on the details of how unique it was for an animated film because it's not like a standard animated film. The way it was shot, the way it was choreographed and the way it came together and it's it rings true every time i watch it it's the same feeling i kind of had when i saw rango for the first time i don't know if you ever uh it's been a minute since i watched that but it's I... it's it's basically chinatown with with cgi um Johnny you know as a gecko but it's but it, what it is is it's it's treating its audience um even though it, it can be geared towards children it's treating its audience like adults in the way that it's set up you know what i mean and you just i feel like you don't see that from many animated films they've come a long way but this one specifically mr fox's um it's stands very out. adult with yeah. a very child heart like yeah exactly even, I, I we're not i didn't really put it in the notes but we could talk about some of it now like even when like they introduce the notion of cursing in this movie I love by it. just saying cuss. They don't the say word. the actual words. They, they say, say what, the, cuss, what, the cuss, what the cuss, you know. Yeah, and it's like and it's, just it's, very funny in that regard. There's a lot of... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of like sexual innuendo and a lot of uh, just adult humor that... Like there's a whole 
discussion between Mr. Fox and Badger about interest rates for a good like 10 seconds. It's amazing. And you're just like, um, this is not for kids. It almost does what DreamWorks did in a very kind of like goofy kind of way where DreamWorks, like you look at Shrek and how crude it is. And Shrek is a great story, humor, but it's like, it's very crude. It's very crass. Um, in the sense that like, sure, like it, kids will love it, but there's clear jokes that like only adults will get. Um, and Fantastic Fox does that in a way that's more genuine, in a way that's more stealthy because like they have dialogue that like normal Wes Anderson fans will just like eat up because they're like, oh, this is what I loved about what I saw in like Life Aquatic or Royal Tenenbaums. Like it feels very cheeky dialogue. Whereas like a child may zone out for like those conversations, but they'll still be, you know, enamored with the, um, uh, you know, the raid scenes or the, the, you know, the sequences where they go underground and they, uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, it appeals to children, but like there's definitely the clear draw for adults. Absolutely. Um, done in a respectable way, you know? So uh, since we've been talking about it, do you want to just jump right into uh Steven, don't even, don't even ask my, don't even ask my permission. Just, just let's get to it. I got my notes. You get your notes. Let's so, do uh, this thing. Let, let's start with the book because that's yes. what this whole thing is based off of. Yes. Uh, it was written in 1970 by this guy, Raul Dahl. That which, guy. This guy. I don't know uh, how much you know about him, but he's a fascinating character. Right? I've heard of him. Have you? Yeah. I have. He's written some stories. He has. Some of his other work includes James and the Giant Peach, which is another classic claymation I, movie. That's a, that's an underrated claim. We don't have to go into it, but that's an underrated movie. I think part partly because of how well it, how unique it is with the claymation animation. It's yeah. Without and, that, I think it would lose its charm. We'll talk about that again in like literally five minutes, I assure you. Uh, okay. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he wrote. He wrote mm -hmm. Matilda, the BFG, and the Witches. So yes, he's uh, quite the storyteller. Quite the storyteller. Not only was he was not only was he a novelist, a poet, a screenwriter, but did you know that he was a wartime fighter pilot during World War II? I did not know that. Not only that. He was like an ace fighter pilot in five combated victories. He did so well that he was promoted and sent to the United States during World War II as an intelligence officer. Uh, wow. So he, he's quite the fascinating character. Uh, I do not know if you have the note here about Raul Dahl, that the original story conceived for Mr. Fox was written at a dark time in Dahl's life as he had already lost one of his five children to measles and witnessed another one suffer from water on the brain as the result of a car accident. It was only natural that he would be spurred on to write a tale portraying the father as a protector of a family. I did not have that, but that's did good Did not mean to like go with, you know, no, dark there. No, that's good. That's pretty it's, dark, but that's, that's a, uh, but that it's interesting. A, but I guess inspiration for great stories come from somewhere. Unfortunately, sometimes they come from tragedy. But I didn't. I had not known that. That was just a yeah. A well, like we, like I said at the top, you know, Dahl is an interesting person. In fact, the character of Fantastic Mr. Fox, like in this movie, was based intentionally off of Dahl. Like Wes Anderson worked hard to make sure the character was like Dahl. Uh, he, in fact, he worked with Dahl's wife, Felicity, 
whose name is in the Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's Mrs. Yeah. Fox. It's obviously uh, a more personal story. It's obviously a way more intimate project for Roald Dahl than I guess perhaps his other stories would have been. Uh, that's my. That's my. That's what I'm gathering from 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 the backstory. I don't know. I heard a story about him winning a golden ticket and meeting. Some I heard that when he was a child, he won a golden ticket, and his grandpa miraculously sprung from the bed after that, being that guy, that asshole. What a lazy piece of shit! Standing up and dancing. You could have been working this whole time. Are you kidding me? I'm sorry. Bed. I just had to break. I have to break for a second because every time I think of, of that, I always think of a meme I saw years ago that had me crying. I think it was on the train. And it's like, good morning to everyone. It was like a tweet. It was like, good morning to everyone except Grandpa Joe, that shit, who got out of bed randomly one day or, and then went on this whole rant about like, good morning to everyone except Grandpa Joe. Like, it was very specifically. This man went from being in a fucking bed, not able to get up, probably like shitting in a bedpan that charlie's mother had to clean to literally flying in a day like come on tap man. dancing in his room like <laughs> while all of his other family members are just sharing a giant blanket all shitting their pants and having their 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 their, their poop buckets cleaned up by their spouses oh, man. <laughs> i enjoy the justice for well no justice against grandpa joe or justice for charlie's other family members <laughs> Or uh, Grandma Georgina, <laughs> or whatever his wife's name was. Uh, we'll call her Georgina. Or was it Josephine? I don't remember which one. This is which. We're being incredibly disrespectful of Ralph's memory, but no, it's great. This is history. Look at the, look at all the the history that this man's storytelling has caused. But please, I digress. So uh, Wes Anderson didn't just like magically get the rights to this to the book. He actually took Felicity Dahl out for dinner because she's still alive. And he's I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing. I just I imagine that like she's like 120 years old, but she's probably no, not. She's not. She's still pretty young. Born in 1938. Okay, so 80s now. Um, okay, so she's not that old. I guess I don't know. I imagine all right, never mind. Yeah, so Wes took her out to like a small restaurant. And rather than getting to brass tacks, he wooed her over by simply saying, like, the cheese souffle here is amazing. And she knew on the spot, like, what this a guy. What a classy guy. Oh, man. So after he got the deal with, uh, with uh, the wife, Wes read every draft that, uh, to every book that Roald Dahl ever wrote. They're all in an archive somewhere, and he was given access to all of them. Um, and he found uh, Donald Chaffin, who was the original illustrator for the book, and hired him to come on board as the concept art artist for this movie. That's he cool. wanted everything to look the way that the pictures and design looked and in the book. Um, well, this is obviously personal for... Um... Wes Anderson, because I just have another note here, is that uh, it was also the first book that Wes Anderson ever owned. His mother bought it for him at the St. Francis Book Fair in Austin, Texas, when he was about seven years old, and he kept the same copy of his bookshelf ever since. So this is obviously a personal story for him. Wow. Um, well, it, 
he went above and beyond for this project, so that does not shock me at all. Because yeah. yeah. apparently Wes went into uh, Dahl's house because the wife still owns it. Mm-hmm. And he literally went into, like, the house is called the Gypsy House. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. But in the backyard is a cabin, which is where Rawl wrote all his books. Oh, wow. And apparently uh, that became Mr. Fox's office in the treehouse. Like, down to, like, where each pencil is left. You know, he yeah. took pictures and had his artists, like, bring it down to the wire. That's incredible. Unsurprisingly for Wes Anderson, he ran with the idea that everything in this movie had to be built from scratch because this isn't like a normal movie. They have to build everything that is put in the frame from the Um, scratch. Yeah, apparently it's all practical. Um, Another note is apparently CGI was only used once and it was during the flooding of the the Flint mine. (laughs) That doesn't shock me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but there were 120 sets, all of which had to be meticulously crafted. And you know what Wes is like, a crazy detail-oriented person. Supposedly, like, a cup in the movie is based off of a cup he loved in a restaurant from New York City. It's <laughs> incredible. I mean, uh, yeah, 535 puns were made for this movie. He had seven, 17 different styles alone, and each of Mr. Fox's styles had to be done in six different sizes. Uh, Mr. Fox alone has 102 puppets. Yeah, but before <laughs> those were even approved, there were 27 uh, Mar- uh, Marquettes, which is the type of model it is, yeah, that, yeah, were yeah. Sub- that were submitted for the design of Mr. Fox. So they oh went through God. 27 renditions before they landed on the actual Mr. Fox. It's outrageous. And most, you know, you said Mr. Fox had more, but most of the models had four different sizes. They had a regular size, a half-scale model, a small model, which is what was used uh, when the animals were, like, flushed down the sewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had micro ones, which were used for, like, wide shots and for like the game that they played i can't remember it's really incredible because you just it's remind it's a reminder because i've seen like documentary uh footage of like nightmare and stuff or even the wallace and gromit uh guys where it's like this is almost like one of the last films of its kind i'll touch more on this at the end but it's like really just like it's amazing you've been talking about all this it's just about the work that goes into how physically produced this movie is dude there were 29 film units going on at once. <laughs> at once. You had the building people, you had the sculpting people, the creating people, the shooting people, the lighting people. 29 film units at once. And on it's a nuts. good day, on a good day, on a full good day, <laughs> you only got 30 seconds of film. Oh my God. It's, it's insane. It's like, it's just the amount of work that goes into it is just something of the past. It's just, it, it's funny to look at this film as we talk about it in the sense that at this point, this technically was Wes's, I don't know what the budget was. I know you had said it before, but it's, uh, this I was his. I did say it, but we could talk about it. I have Well, it, I, I was going to say, it, it almost feels like this is his biggest film today, you and I have covered. Because it's like all the other movies, he's getting bigger and bigger, and he's changing his sets, and then he goes to India, and he does a whole set on a train, and it's like, how can he, he's almost like doing what Nolan was doing by the time he's working towards Interstellar, where he's trying to outdo himself. Um, except this time, it's really like, uh, I don't know, the work is really... Going in a so how much do you way. think this movie costs to make? Let's don't look it up. 
cheater. Nah, I'm not looking anything up. I'm just going to see what was at the top. I'm not looking um, it up. I'm just seeing how much it costs. I'm not looking anything up. Um, uh, I don't know, $50 million. $16 million. That's what I meant. I meant 16 of course. Did which, I say 50 I meant. Which is pretty good. I don't know how they got $16 million? One, six million. I would think that puppets would cost a fortune. I would think that all this production would cost a, an absolute I don't know. Fortune. Maybe shit costs less in London. The, at the box office, it made $68.3 million. So it was, See, that's it was a good. good return on money. Like I, I said, this is kind of, I don't mean to diminish everything that came before it, but this is really the upturn for Wes Anderson in hindsight, because well, this movie yeah. made money. And after this, it, his movies and his persona start to take on a new light. This is when the cult becomes to take hold around. I was just going to say, I think that Royal Tenenbaums is the moment that he became noticed very critically. Like people, uh, people are like, oh, he's a, he's a very skilled filmmaker and storyteller. And then this is the movie where he really gained a wide audience so he had the critics i think first and he had some audience but this is where like you said with the cult because life aquatic captures the cult of wes anderson more than almost any other picture he's done but this is like this was wider because now you're bringing in children and now you're 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 building the name and now there's diversity now you're not just doing live action you're doing animation you know this is he's completely peering back the curtains even further and he's like look i can do more and more people were like yeah more, we want more of this um, this was a, this was a very, you, you, I mean, you nailed it. It's a very good turning point for his career. Um, it's cool to see. It's cool to revisit, especially going. Quickly. Uh, I only have two more bits of information and missing out on the turning point was Henry Selick, who we've discussed in the past. He did the, um, animate, like the creatures in Life Aquatic. Yeah. And he also was the director of James and the Giant Peach, which is why I said I would bring it up in five months. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, he was originally supposed to be the directing supervisor, but he left because he was given uh, money to make co and direct Coraline, which was also nominated for Best Animated Feature that same year. Very interesting. Um, he literally left a job to compete. To do a, uh, to do a competing film. Yeah, that's interesting. Um the only note I have for the list is the top The top note of IMGB is that um, Wes Anderson chose to have the actors and actresses record their dialogue outside of a studio and on location oh, to increase yeah. the naturalness. And he said, we went out into a forest, we went to the attic, we went to a stable, we went underground for some things. There was great spontaneity in the recordings because of that. Um, yeah, there's actually footage of uh, George Clooney like doing the actual... like physicality of what his character is supposed to be doing which is crazy well they said w one of the best takes was almost ruined by the sound of a nearby boat um open to randomness anderson modified the scene to include a flying airplane through the shot and he said i think it was better with the airplane than without the flaw in the recording gave us a new idea to change the story so it's very interesting to see how yeah, they adapted funny. Um, it's cool because it feels very student film and that's just being open to like almost like um, guerrilla style filmmaking. Like, let's just be open to doing this and that, you know what I mean? And it's just cool to see uh, Wes build this name for himself uh, in studios and with critics, like I was saying. And yet he's still open to these like creative ideas that you just, I feel like you don't see in a lot of big filmmakers. 
Yeah, he's definitely not one of those directors to sit and sulk because he didn't get a take 100% correct. Right. Uh, the last note I have was that uh, Kate Blanchett was originally supposed to play Felicity Fox. That makes sense. I, uh, which, I don't know. I You say it makes sense. To me, it doesn't. I would have thought that the runner-up would have been Angelica Houston. Well, that's... I mean that. Would, I mean, based on the Wes Anderson lineup, that's who I expected. That's who I would have expected. But yeah. seeing as they had just done uh, Life Aquatic before this, well, the things they had just done Life Aquatic before this, Kate Blanchett being uh, yeah, but interrupt, and it would make Jellica sense. Houston was also in Darjeeling and Rushmore. Well, oh, we um, you know she. That's right. She. That's right. We was she's a staple of his. So I was shocked he, that she. And yeah, she's she's well versed in the raw doll universe. She was the Grand High Witch in the Witches. Yeah, she is the top Wes Anderson female I would have picked. But in my mind, it was Life Aquatic was before this. It was actually uh, Moonrise was right before this. So, and that, like you said, that had Angelica Houston in it. That's his go, been his go-to. So, and let's talk a minute about the casting in this. Like, sure, like his movies have had all-star casts up until this point, but this is like top tier like a-lister in even like the smallest of voices like literally there is a mouse in this movie and it is adrian brody he has literally half a line and it is adrian brody every um, single character in this movie is like a famous person this is the beginning of what he would later do in budapest what with like actual people is he's just gathering all of his super friends together to make like a giant uh west anderson party of people even Moonrise, literally every person, down to some of the campers, are now famous. That I don't want to spoil someone who I had no idea was in Moonrise Kingdom, but I was shocked when I saw his fucking face. I was like, no fucking way. I can't even think of what you're talking about. Don't save it, save it for next time. We'll save it for next time. Um, but, uh, but this movie has a little bit of, I mean, even Brian Cox, Action 12 reporter. Yeah. Michael um, Gambin. Um his back. You had George Clooney as the lead voice. This yeah. uh, up-and-comer um, Muriel Streep. I don't know if you Muriel. ever heard of her. Muriel? I've heard of Muriel Streep. Uh, you know, Jason Schwartzman, of course, is the same as always. Yeah, but yeah. We'll, we'll run through the cast as we go through the movie. Uh, Speaking yeah, of which, are you ready of... to go through the movie? Uh, I am. The film opens with a quick title card. Bogus and Bounce and Bean. One fat, one short, one lean. These horrible crooks, so different in looks, were none the less equally mean. As the text dissipates, a claymation hand holding the fantastic Mr. Fox by Raul Dahl appears. Just like the classic Disney animated films or the Royal Tenenbaums, Wes is signaling that the story is about to begin. In a wide shot, we see a glistening orange sunrise behind a tree on a hill. Next to the tree is Mr. Fox doing his stretches while listening to the ballad of Davy Crockett. The radio is turned off as Felicity, Meryl Streep, comes up the hill. She has just returned from the doctor. The diagnosis was a 24-hour bug, which we know is not true, as she is literally glowing. Like, literally glowing. For the first time, Mr. Fox offers Felicity a false choice. The scenic route or the shortcut? They go the scenic route, though Felicity chose the shortcut, which I noticed watching this movie this time. Like, Mr. Fox loves offering people things, but doing what he wants to fucking do. I love it. 
The couple are at Burke's squab farm. And what is a squab? I don't, I still don't know what a squab is. Uh, It's gotta be just a made up word, right? No, it's a real, it's a bird. It's like a pigeon. We should fact check this before we lie, uh, give fake news to the audience. No, I know what it is. I was just quoting Felicity. No. While Felicity does not know what a squab is, they are nonetheless about to steal one. Another false choice is offered to Felicity. The horse fence or the brittle path? After she says the horse fence, Mr. Fox once again rebuffs her and makes the choice the brittle path. In a long shot, the foxes are seen making their way across the farm, evading the humans. Once the birds are taken, the couple leaves through the front door of the coop. Mr. Fox sees a very obvious fox trap. Against his better judgment and Felicity's dismay, Mr. Fox pulls on the trap and a cage drops around them, which I don't know why he did that. Like he literally sees and comments that like, this is a fox trap. Mm. Why do you pull it? Uh, I think because he's like a showman, he needs to kind of just like, not like a, he's showing off, but he's. Uh, no, he is a show off. He is, but it's almost like, I mean, I know it's for comedic effect. I mean, children will visually be able to, you know, see as a cue that this is the thing you talked about and then he's in the trap. But it's also, I feel like it's almost him stroking his own ego a little bit. Yeah, I guess. I don't it's, know. It's Chekhov's chain, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at this moment, uh, Fox pulls on the trap and a cage door around them. At this moment, Felicity tells Mr. Fox she's pregnant. And quote, if we're still alive tomorrow, I want you to find another line of work. It's funny, even in just reflecting, because I just have this, because I have the movie playing while we're going. It's just, I'm, I have it on mute, obviously, but I'm, I'm, I'm reading, even now I'm reading the dialogue in Angelica Houston's voice. <laughs> right? I mean, because I'm just so wrong. used to her being the lead female. That's my point. Like, I obviously love Meryl Streep. She's a great I mean, yeah, actress. How can I not like her? But I just felt odd to me that he would choose someone whose voice is tonally similar to Angelica Houston. It's a little too similar. I mean, let's be real. Meryl probably cost a penny more than Angelica Houston did. I I was just going to say, I think in in hindsight, it's probably for headlines. It's probably to draw people in. George Clooney and Meryl Streep are the two headlines because it's I mean, the movie made money, you know what I mean? So I don't know if it's just, because I don't think, he doesn't come off as that kind of filmmaker where it's like, oh, let me do the, make this decision because it's going to make more money. But at the same time, it's obviously... I just feel like if it's not, like you say, it, it's an animated movie. It's right. not like it's live action. So like, right, it's not like right. if there's not a moment, get a nominate, yeah. if there's a, any moment where it doesn't matter who the casting is, it's this. Because like, no kid is going to an animated movie going, Meryl Streep's in this movie. They're no, it's their parents. Hear. Yeah, but even the parent is not going to go, oh, Meryl Streep's in an animated movie. I wonder if she'll get nominated for an Oscar for yeah, Exactly. <laughs> well, if anyone could get nominated for an Oscar for an animated role, it would be Meryl, right? I mean, she's the only one who could pull it off. Although, and I'll save it for later, but I, um, in the way that you said Life Aquatic is like the most, is like a Bill Murray kind of movie, it's like weird watching this that I don't know if it's just Clooney has such a specific like tone of voice, but like he, I really just feel this is George Clooney. Like I just, right. I really, it feels like I can't see anyone else. You know what I mean? I'm sure you could have picked any other big actor to play the role, but it really just feels, this feels like George no, Clooney. This kind feels of just like a it. great George Clooney role. I also feel like 
what we were talking about earlier, how they recorded while doing the action. I don't know if Meryl Streep did that. And let's be real, her character doesn't have that much action involved. Sure, sure. So maybe the physicality aspect helped with the George mm -hmm. Clooney role. Yeah. Also, it let's peel back George Clooney's filmography here. You know, what is he known for? For playing a sly con artist, you know, like in Ocean's. It's Danny, Ocean's it's Danny Ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But alas, um, two years later, or 12 Fox years, a newspaper is delivered to number one Bramble on Shrub, the Fox residence. The headline reads, Fox about town with Mr. Fox. Mr. Fox, true to his word, changed his line of work from thief to newspaperman. As he eats breakfast, <laughs> the family dynamic unfurls. Mr. Fox is clearly not satisfied with his life. He wants to live above ground, not under it. Fair enough. He has become a content housewife and their son, Ash, Jason Schwartzman, like his father, feels he deserves more respect. It is also learned that Christopherson Silver Fox, Ash's cousin, will be coming to stay with the family soon. Mr. Fox wolfs down his food. Which was gross. That was like... Which is so funny. See, those are the moments, though. Those are the moments where, like, it breaks traditional, even animated expectation. You don't expect characters to... <laughs> behave like that you know um he and this movie's head. and this movie's filled with moments like that but because they're only a couple seconds long or sometimes only one second long you don't really dwell on it um uh it's i don't know it makes it special but um what's crazy I'll, is that was probably like what maybe two to five seconds of the whole film and that probably took like literally half a day to do Stop motion. I mean, like I said, when I've watched documentary, because oh, like I love Nightmare Before Christmas, so I've seen tons of like documentary footage of it, and it's like just moving. I mean, we've come a long way since 1993, whenever that was. But even just moving, uh, either way, uh, this is you know you know more than a decade later, a decade and a half later, and it's just like even just moving the body uh, movements and the mouth, like you said, eating food. It's like. It's a few seconds, and yet each motion has to be filmed in its sense that it's, yeah, yeah. it looks quick on the screen, but it's really not. It's I, not I don't a, know if you've it, ever seen, like, there's, um, what's it called? I, I don't know, even know if you saw the movie Kubo and the Two Strings, but I saw. It, and I was incredibly impressed with it when I watched it. It's great. But um, I saw, like, a behind-the-scenes thing of them moving. It, it's a time-lapse video, and I'm just like, this is nuts. That's like, another, I bring them up often. It's Lake, uh, Leica. Leica. That's another studio that I, like, I would, I would donate whatever money that, that towards them to keep them going because that's the kind of film, filmmaking that like, I think we need, you know? Yeah. They make great original content, but their movies do not make money <laughs> at all. Well, it's sad because it's, they're one of those industries that'll probably, if they go the the way that they're going, despite critical, and Oscar, you know, nominations and, and, and critical reception is like, I mean, you just, they they do not have wide re enough recognition, you know? So it's like, it's they just need, sad. I mean, it may kill them, but they need a TV show. That would, that would help. I mean, that would, if you get the right people, if you get the same people on board who are making the movies, you know? So, um, but I don't know. I'm, a, I'm, I'm nostalgic. I'm a sucker for these kinds of movies. I'll save all this for the final, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, 
anything stop motion just really gets me uh really gets me going <laughs> but anyway uh so mr fox wolfs down his food cuts out a house listing from the newspaper and does his signature whistle click as he leaves very comical uh in the next scene weasel wes anderson is showing mr fox the house from the newspaper also in the house is kylie Waller Darcy? Waldarsky? Waldarsky? Waldarsky. Slippies. Swanson. So, Samsonite. All right, yeah. Basinger? Basinger? Kylie, who is the super of the house, in the horizon of the treehouse are the factories of Vagas. In a beaver dam, the Badger, Beaver, and Beaver Law Office. It's so ridiculous just reading it like this. It's so it's what makes it so good. Clive Badger, Bill Murray, is imploring Mr. Fox not to buy the treehouse, citing the bad interest rate <laughs> citing the bad interest rate that loan would cost and it would be dangerous for a fox to live too close to the factories. I mean it's science. It's just science. It's science. Walt Bogus is a chicken farmer, probably the most successful in the world. He weighs the same as a young rhinoceros. He eats three chickens every day for breakfast, lunch, supper, and dessert. That's 12 in total per diem. Nate Bunce is a duck and goose farmer. He's approximately the size of a pot-bellied dwarf, and his chin would be underwater in the shallow end of any swimming pool on the planet. His food is homemade donuts with smashed-up goose livers injected into them. Frank Bean is a turkey and apple farmer. He invented his own species of each. He lives on a liquid diet of strong alcoholic cider, which he makes from his apples. He's as skinny as a pencil, as smart as a whip, and possibly the scariest man currently living. The local human children sing a kind of eerie little rhyme about him. Here, listen to this. And summation, I think you just got to not do it, man. That's all. Let's just talk about the quote real quick. They, yes. These are some fun people. I, I can't wait to hang out with all of them. They're very, uh, a very personable bunch. What I, I just love the descriptions of them. You know, like one of them is like a rhinoceros. One of them, it's, one of them is it, short. One of them only, like his only food intake is cider. Like that's crazy. I'm not um, discrediting Wes Anderson's writing. because He's obviously a good writer, but. And it's not his actual well, I, work i imagine well, this is in the book i was just gonna say the, i feel like this description has to be pulled from the pages he's as skinny as his pen he's as skinny as a pencil smart as a whip and possibly the scariest man currently living the local human children sing a kind of eerie little rhyme about him like just the way it's worded is i'm not saying it's it westerners is incapable of writing like that but it's it feels too much like it's pulled from a brilliant children's book you know yeah <laughs> um but nevertheless, uh, Mr. Mr. Fox tells Badger that he respects his opinion, but will buy the treehouse anyway. Squirrel, Roman Coppola, who co-wrote this movie with Wes Anderson, by the way, I didn't point that out earlier. Uh, Squirrel is leading the charge at fixing up the treehouse. Time jumps as the treehouse has been painted and furnished. The family, including cousin Christopherson, Silver Fox, Eric Anderson, who is Wes Anderson's brother. The family, including Christopherson and Silver Fox, relaxes outside their new home. Mr. Fox is resting and having an apple. Felicity is painting. Ash and Christopherson are jumping in the pool, though Christopherson is showing, 
is shown to have more grace, doing a perfect dive and then meditating. Ash, extremely jealous, as he always fancied himself an athletic, wants to know how long Christofferson will be staying. Felicity says until his father, who has a double ammonia, is better. Later that night, on the balcony of the treehouse, Mr. Fox and Kylie and Kylie are looking out on the factories. Mr. Fox pontificates that a fox isn't happy unless they have a chicken. He hands Kylie a mask and says, quote, and so it begins. Mr. Fox, with Kylie's help, has, mas has a master plan for one final job. Of course, it's always the final job. It's always a final it's job. always the final job. The first part is to steal chickens from Bogus's farm. The only hurdle will be his beagles, but Mr. Fox has laced blueberries with 10 milligrams of highly potent sleeping powder, enough to knock out a, a rhinoceros. And by the way, beagles love blueberries, apparently. Absolutely. Science. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I guess dogs like eating anything. I don't know. <laughs> that is definitely true. Meanwhile, inside, Ash and Christofferson are sharing a room, but Christofferson is forced to sleep under Ash's model train table, which is pretty fucking mean. Yeah. Ash tries to cheer Christofferson up by playing with the trains, but this is short-lived. The next day, in Miss Muskrat's sixth and three-quarters grade chemistry class, Ash once again is made to feel inadequate, as his partner Agnes... Juman Moloff is being disloyal, is being quote-unquote disloyal, and cannot take her eyes off Christofferson. Christofferson, on the other hand, is partnered with Beaver, Stephen Rails, who sets off an explosion just for fun. Ash is, like, kind of a jerk, but he's also pretty funny. Like, when he tells his uh, lab partner you're being disloyal because she's just, like, looking at Christofferson, it's like, come on, man. You're supposed to be my lab partner. I am. No, you're not. You're disloyal. I do love Jason Schwartzman. He's very, um, I can't, I almost can't even see him outside the realm of Wes Anderson. He just fits, he fits so well into these kinds of stories. Um, and it's funny, even just watching, just have it, having it, just having it play while we talk, it's just even the, even the way that the shots are framed, like, sure, it's an animated stop motion movie, but it's like the, sh the signature Wes Anderson shots are still here. Mm -hmm. It's just very funny to see that the center frame looking into the camera or um, just the overhead shots and the, the I don't know. It's just very funny because that lab scene I was just when it was coming through, it's just the way that they're positioned. I'm like, oh, this is basically like Life Aquatic, but with like a well, stop motion animals. That's what I was saying. I mean, I was going to save it kind of for final notes, but yeah, you kind of talked about it earlier too. You know, that's what engaged me in this movie to begin with. Just yeah. how Wes Anderson it was. That's what sucked me in. I'm just, yeah. and having never see seen a Wes Anderson movie before, it was just like astounding to watch. It's just cool to watch. As, 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 right, of course. But as you and I have watched these chronologically to, to see just how much of his imprint is still on here. But yeah, we'll, we'll save all that for later. Mr. Fox's master plan takes off as he and Kylie arrive at Boggs' farm. There is one hiccup in the plan, a new electric fence. The team hops, climbing in using the tree. Just like Mr. Fox did, beagles love blueberries and pass out. And the, <laughs> the way his eyes change, the dog's eyes, they just, he stares for a second and the, the, uh, the people's change and then he just drops. Passes out. I love it so much. It's so comical. Me too. Um, 
They easily get to the chicken coop, but their presence is known as Kylie could not chicken in one bite. To avoid capture, they climb the electric fence to freedom. Bacchus Which is also funny. It's, it's hilarious. I've laughed a lot more. I'll say, I'll try, whatever. It's all final. It's, this whole thing is a final vote. It's just, it's, but it's, in, I laughed a lot more than I had realized. Like, this movie's a lot funnier than I realized. Um, well, we mentioned it earlier, too. You know, this movie is as much for adults as it is for kids. Yeah. It's very, it's very slapstick like in a genuine way. It's just, it moves so fast. Like, it's funny. And before you know it, there's a whole nother action taking place while you're still laughing from the moment before. You know? Yeah. Writing the synopsis for this was interesting because the movie is only 88 minutes. Like, that's it, it. And there's just, it's so tight. There's so much plot. It's just funny because they really cram in every, I think because they know, they, they, they're sensitive to how much time it takes to shoot stop motion animation. They want to keep it short, but they also had to milk every single moment. They had to literally make every second count. They, I mean, maybe it is the nature of stop motion, but, and being able to literally put whatever you want in each frame yeah. But he utilizes every single frame in this movie. Not a frame is wasted. Not a square um, to spare. Not a square to To avoid capture, they climb the electric fence to freedom. Bogus with a shotgun finding a blueberry tries it and passes out. <laughs> cool. They said it could take out a rhinoceros, right? It's amazing. The next morning, Felicity finds a chicken in the pantry. Proud of himself, Mr. Fox calls Kylie over, telling him that the master plan has three parts. Tonight, they are going to hit Bunce's farm. Phase two goes off without a hitch as Bunce sits with his back to the security cameras. Which Felicity was also didn't... hilarious. That was, that was Literally, the whole hilarious. plan has just gone on behind him, and all he had to do is turn around. <laughs> it's amazing. It's very, you know what it is? It's almost like... Um, uh, not quite like Abbott and Costello, but it's like it's like almost like very old, like a Charlie Chaplin style. Like it's like an old comedic. It is an where, old school bit, yeah. Like you just see all the action happening in the back of this one oblivious character. It's something that like something like Looney Tunes came very well. It's a very no, old, Looney Tunes is perfect. That's that's a great example. It's an old fashioned style of classic humor that children and adults both cater to. Um, it's brilliant. Um, Felicity the next morning finds the pantry loaded with duck. At school, Ash once again dined by his cousin. After Coach Skip, of course, Owen Wilson, explains the rules of whack bat to Christofferson, he is deemed to be a natural. This is a blow too far for Ash, who has stated before, thinks of himself as an athlete. What's more, Coach Skip rubs Christofferson's talent in Ash's face by saying he sees where Mr. Fox's talent went. Ash is so wounded that he feels it necessary to bring his own trophy to the dinner table. Which was also funny. He's literally also, having dinner with a fucking it, trophy next to him. He's like, yeah, this is mine. <laughs> Mr. Fox and Kylie's final heist into Bean's cider cellar is underway. Ash attempts to join in, but is rebuffed. However, Mr. Fox has asked Christofferson to join in. The three make it into the cellar with ease, but once inside the treasure trove, they find Rat, Willem Dafoe. The details are unspecified, but Rat and Mr. Fox seem to have a history. Before they fight, Rat taunts Mr. Fox about Felicity's past. The door to the cellar opens, distracting Rat just long enough for Mr. Fox to lock him in a hole. 
I also wanted to note, sorry, before uh, we continue, the sailor sequence was crazy to shoot too because the light, the way that uh, Wes described it, he wanted it to be quote unquote self-illuminating. So the light comes from the bottles themselves. So you literally could not move a single bottle because it would throw off the lighting for the entire set. That's wild. It is. It's crazy. It's, I mean, in watching it, it's just funny to see because it really looks. It's beautiful. I can't even explain it. It's just, it looks, they, they, whatever look they were going for, they captured it. Like it's, and that's one of the things about this movie. Again, we'll <laughs> save whatever final thoughts we'll have after this if we have any, but it's like, it's so good. It's so that just the way every, like the way it's framed, it just feels natural. I don't, like normally I see movies, I'm like, oh, I probably shot it like this, or they did it, they added this for effects, but like, they just, they, they you just the sequence, it's going by as we're talking about it, it's just they capture it. Like that lighting is incredible. It's just. Down the stairs comes Mrs. Bean, Helen McCroy, who is uh, in Peaky Blinders, if anyone cares. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, fun fact. While grabbing bottles of cider, she almost stumbles across the thieves, but is too blind to see them. Mr. Fox, Christofferson, and Kylie get away with a bottle of cider each. When Mr. Fox returns home, he is met by a not-too-thrilled Felicity. If what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. With all the major factories now hit, Bogus, Robin Hurlstone, Bunce, Hugo Guinness, and Bean, Michael Gambon, decide to take care of their Fox problem. The next day, the three men wait outside Mr. Fox's house. They are not as stealthy as they believe. As soon as Mr. Fox leaves his house, he senses danger. The three men open fire and shoot Mr. Fox's tail clean off. Inside the house, Felicity stitches up Mr. Fox's wound. Ash intensively says that the injury isn't as bad as Christopherson's father, who has one foot in the grave. <laughs> Harsh. Uh, later that night, Mr. Fox is in bed complaining to Felicity about all the money he will lose because of the house. Once yeah, again, again, it goes back to like adult themes. He's like, yeah, I'm going to yeah, lose yeah. so much money on this house, even though it's, like you're a fox. That's one a, thing that's funny about this movie that is never brought to light. You know, mm -hmm. the sentience of animals is not even questioned by the humans. No, not, not once. Not once. They are like the three factory owners are like, yeah, this fox is sentient. He can read and write. Like, we'll get to it later, but they literally are writing notes to one another. It's so funny. It's just one of those things that breaks, like, and it, the movie moves so quick and it's so witty and intelligent that it's just, you would never think otherwise because you suspend your belief right from the opening of the film that it's like, oh, these are animals acting like humans, which is what tons of animated movies have been doing since the dawn of time, since the dawn of whatever animated films. But later that night, Mr. Fox is in bed complaining, about, complaining to Felicity about all the money he will lose because of the house. Once again, sensing danger, Mr. Fox gathers his family and they begin to dig. The digging continues for an hour. Once they stop, Mr. Fox says that it may be time for a pep talk. Felicity pulls him aside and slaps him. <laughs> the only explanation Mr. Fox has for his behavior is that he is a wild animal. Speaking of them acting like humans. Right. Not buying it, but resigned to the circumstance, Felicity says she knows how this will all end. We all die unless you change. Above ground, Bean is pulling out all of the stops to ensure Mr. Fox is captured. Dozers, Dynamite, and all employees on site. I gotta, I just wanna 
take a moment. You know how we notice like these weird little tropes with uh, Nolan? Here's a weird little trope with Wes Anderson that I've noticed. Every single one of his movies has incorporated dynamite. I was Every just going to say, I was going to say it's either guns or dynamite or some form of explosives. They appear, I think I, we should have actually flagged it so we can make it a notable trope for the awards at the end. But I really think Dynamite appears in almost in, in every movie he's done. I am fairly sure that it is at least name-dropped in every single one of his movies. Maybe not Royal Tenenbaums, but every single one of his movies, it is mentioned. Above ground, Bean is pulling out all the stops to ensure Mr. Fox is captured, ordering bulldozers, Dynamite, and all employees on site. Bean is even wearing Mr. Fox's tail as a necktie to rub it in. <laughs> Three days or two and a half fox weeks later, Mr. Fox and his family are now in an ancient cave. Or so the paintings on the wall would suggest. The dirt wall comes crumbling to reveal Badger, Beaver, and several other animals pissed off. A lot of good animals are probably going to die because of you! We've been digging in circles for three days. Half the woods have been obliterated. Nobody can get out. Right now, my wife's huddled at the bottom of the Flint mine with no food, no water, and 27 starving animal brats. Beaver's so mad that he rubs dirt into Ash's face, which forces Christopherson to beat Beaver up. Mr. Fox has an idea to help everyone, though. One human hour later, the animals have dug their way into Bog's chicken coop, followed by Bean and Bunce's factories. The animals are all regrouped at an underground refugee camp. Mr. Fox emerging says, quote, we took everything. Cut to Bean exclaiming, quote, they took everything, which was a great cut. That's great. Bean then begins to destroy everything in his sight until he has an idea while looking at the cider tank. Underground, the animals are preparing for a celebratory dinner. Before the celebration can begin, Ash pulls Christofferson to the side, asking for his help to get Mr. Fox's tail back from Bean. This heist does not go as planned. This time, Mrs. Bean is wearing her glasses. The feast at Badger Camp is about to begin. Mr. Fox cuts off Badger's toast to make his own. As he triumphantly says that they won, he notices Ash and Christofferson are missing. Cider floods the hideout, forcing the animals into the sewer. All looks lost. Ash finds his parents to tell them Christofferson has been taken. Mr. Fox, realizing the gig is up, decides that he must turn himself in. But first he makes amends with his wife and kid, explaining to Felicity he felt internal pressure to be the, quote, fantastic Mr. Fox. And in a gladiator way, he tells Ash his shortcomings were his own fault. Did you, I don't know if, like, you caught on to that, but, like, you remember in the beginning of Gladiator when Commodus is, like, yeah, Marcus Aurelius is, it's not even, like, a good excuse, you know, Marcus Aurelius is telling uh, Commodus, is like, going, he's telling him he's, um, I know he, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, he's saying, what's wrong with you, essentially what he's saying, what's wrong with you was because I was a bad father, you, like, right. That's what's being said here. That's not even, like, that's not good. You could still be a good person, even if yeah. you're a bad, you have a bad yeah, father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a circle. Anyway, Badger and crew have decided to search for Christofferson. While looking, they encounter Rat, who has a ransom note made up of cut-up magazine letters <laughs> for Mr. Fox. 
The note essentially says what Mr. Fox is already doing, turn himself in for Christofferson. Ash interrupts this meeting, clarifying to Rat that he, not Christofferson, is Mr. Fox's son. In a West Side Story way, Rat literally snaps into action to try and take Ash. Before he can do so, Felicity stops Rat, followed quickly by Mr. Fox, who rumbles with Rat in an electric fenced area. Get it? Rumbled? Yeah. West Side Story? Um, <laughs> in an electric fenced area. Rat dies, but not before telling Mr. Fox where Christofferson is. Mr. Fox announces to all the animals, quote, my suicide mission has been canceled. We're replacing it with a go for broke rescue mission. In a new toast slash speech, Mr. Fox lists all the animals in both English and Latin and tells them essentially to release their inner animal. And in Ocean's Eleven way, the animals all in suits walk down the hall ready to go to war. The humans receive a letter back from Mr. Fox, also with magazine cutout letters, stating that he will surrender at 10. The hour of surrender is at hand. The wire grate opens up. Instead of Mr. Fox, pine cones on fire hurled out, setting the city streets ablaze. Mr. Fox, Kylie, and Ash, the stowaway, emerge on a motorcycle from the swerve and make for Bean's Annex, Bean's annex to save Christofferson. At Bean's facility, the rescue team is confronted with a rabid beagle, which Mr. Fox has to distract. Ash, because he is little, is able to get into the annex and free Christofferson. At this point, the escape route is blocked off by the humans, all of which are heavily armed. To break free, Ash athletically opens the door to sick the rabid dog loose on the humans. The crew load up into the motorcycle and make for break. Ash, on the way out, is also able to grab Mr. Fox's tail back. They have escaped. On the way back to the sewer, in the distance is a wolf. Mr. Fox tries to make contact with the wolf, talking both English and Latin to it, but ultimately, they both just raise their fists in solidarity. Very touching. Very touching stuff. All the animals are now happily living in the sewer system. Mr. Fox has reattached his mangled tail back on, which maybe he shouldn't have. That was pretty gross. The film concludes with Mr. Fox taking his family to a supermarket. Felicity tells Mr. Fox that she is pregnant again. This time, both father and mother glow. Mr. Fox gives a final toast, and the family dances as, as they feast in the supermarket. The end. He did it. Um, Even though we, I, I feel like we've given our final thoughts throughout the whole We've given so many of our final thoughts. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. But um, watching the movie and talking about the movie, I, I feel like talking about the movie has given me more energy about it. Watching it, was it amazing? Was it great? Absolutely. But it's definitely not my favorite Wes Anderson movie of all time. That's not to say it's bad at all. Um, I, like I said, this is the movie that got me into Wes Anderson movies in the first place. Uh, like Josh was saying before, when he was paraphrasing my story, you know, the way in which it's shot, the way in which the story is told, the way in which the characters deliver their lines, everything about it is very Wes Anderson, more so than it is any other animated movie. Uh, and that just sucked me into the world because I had never seen anything like it. And to this day, 
I guess Isle of Dogs excluded, I still have not seen another animated movie that is very much like this. Even other claymation movies or stop motion animated movies, because I'm sure they don't use clay. Um, uh, even to this day, stop motion animated movies are not necessarily made like this. Do I love Kubo and the Two Strings? Absolutely. But does it have Wes Anderson's meticulous flair? No. Uh, this is truly an autorist animated movie, which is something that is very rare to see. So my those are essentially my final thoughts. I don't have much to say other than I do really enjoy this movie. And I think that it's a Wes Anderson movie through and through. Wow, those are powerful words there, Stephen. That's really... I don't think they're that powerful. It's really deep. More like a ramble. It's really a, it's really a deep, intricate ramble. One that I agree with, as we've done in the past, is you've said a lot of things I wanted to say, or I've said the things you've wanted to say in the past. But um, in terms of um, this movie, I think what I say best about it is that for me, it's a movie I admire and respect far more than I actually enjoy it. Like it's something that I'm so taken aback in, like you said, in, in talking about it, in reminiscing on how well made it is. It's something that is just it's undeniable objectively it's one of the most it's one of the more creatively produced animated films of whatever of this of the century of this new century you know what i mean so because what it is is it harks back to movies that we grew up with as children and it harks back to claymation and like i said like the the Wallace and gromit uh, studio or um the made chicken run or whatever or like i said nightmare before christmas or as you said um james the giant peach and it's they're they are the types of projects that live on through Leica Studios. And like you said, it's it's almost unfortunate because like these are the kinds of movies that don't make a lot of money. Now, for this movie, it's, it's backed by Wes Anderson, who has been building a name for himself. So for him to put his tropes and his signature moves and, and, and actors and style into uh, what he wanted to be a beloved tribute to a book he grew up with, that rings true um, feeling like a Raul Dahl book and yet also equally feeling like a Wes Anderson film is very um, respectable. Um, this is a movie that like, I, I can't deny the craft. It's so well done that even me saying like, Oh, it's not one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies is like, um, it doesn't matter because it's like it, this movie merits so much credit because of the work that went into it. It's, I mean, it's arguably the most well-crafted Westerners in film. I mean, I was going to say in terms of production value, but I mean, once you get to like Grand Budapest, it's kind of hard because like he just keeps kind of outdoing himself in terms of production quality. It's certainly, like we were saying initially, like in terms of scale, like the way, the amount of work that went into it, um, the amount of set pieces and puppets and, and coloring and design, it's just visually... Um, it's stunning. Um, yeah, it's kind of hard to get past it, is it being for it being kid friendly and for me to just adult and to try and look at it in this way, but also viewing it chronologically in Wes Anderson's um, lineup. It's, it's a very unique place for it to fall on. It's one that I just like, every time it comes up, I'm like, I really just, um, I really admire how it was put together. And that almost, that almost trumps anything we have in terms of it not being, 
quote unquote, one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies. Like that almost doesn't matter for me because of how unique and well done this movie is. So it's very special because it reminds me of movies that I grew up with, that we grew up with, that you just don't really see anymore. Well, you see them from Lanka, but like we said, they may go bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, was that, uh, are you good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could literally just, I could do a filibuster about this. I could do what yeah. Pat Oswalt does on Parks and Rec when he talks about Star Wars. And, uh, and Marvel. And now, Marvel. <laughs> one, one quote that came back to me was actually one of your own. I think you said it on our first, um, on our uh, first podcast about Wes Anderson. You said something along the lines of, um, you know, whether you like the movies that come sequentially or not, you can't deny the craft gets better with each movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of where I am with this movie. It is it my favorite Wes Anderson movie? No, but like you said, craft wise, it is miles ahead of where Bottle Rocket was. Like, yeah, this is a completely like this is a I know it's a kid movie, but it's totally mature in the way in which it is filmed and executed. Yeah, um, he he's really out. He really outdoes himself production wise. Almost every film he does, like I said, like or you just quoted that I said, it's. <laughs> I just quoted you. <laughs> like it doesn't matter what your feelings are. It's just he just he clearly is upping his game production wise. Every movie he does. Um. All right. So those are our final thoughts. You ready to give your pick of the week? I sure am. Um, my pick of the week will be Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz. Um, very specifically, I mean, in terms of the second of the third of the, of the Cornetto trilogy, it's, I watching, uh, talking about, uh, fantastic, fantastic Mr. Fox. I think of something that's very plot driven. That's comedic because I've been going with comedy themes this, uh, this season, this segment, whatever you want to call this, um, because of, um, how witty and fast paced and how plot driven that movie is, but also it's, it's compelled by, um, like very heartwarming uh, relationships and characters um, that are very likable and it's charming in its own sick, violent kind of British way. Um, the amount of satire and action and uh, the way the humor just whizzes by so fast and the way it's edited, it's stitched together. Um, I, I, I don't know, not that the styles are completely comparable, but in terms of something that like harks to the tropes of other movies like hot fuzz is one of those for me that it's like, Oh, it's like a, it's like a take on uh, like cop action movies. You know what I mean? But it's completely making fun of them in the way that fantastic Mr. Fox is like taking, um, you know, spy movies or heist movies. And it's just, um, it's reminiscent for me in that sense of it's, it's completely uh, molding its audience in the world of the types of genres and tropes that you're familiar with. And yet they do it in a completely brilliant uh, comical way. It's a movie for me that will never get old. Uh, I love all of uh, that whole, the Cornetto, but it's like that one specifically uh, will be my shout out in terms of the, uh, this episode. That's a good one. And that yeah. movie, unlike fantastic Mr. Fox did get Kate Blanchett. Uh, oh, that's true. That is true. Uh, so for my pick of the week, I'm going to go with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Not to be confused with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Tim Burton remake, which shall sure. not be mentioned. I'm talking about the original Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971. Right. Josh and I made fun of uh, Grandpa Joe before, which is pretty, <laughs> you know, there's no denying there are flaws in the movie, but 
I also can't deny that I grew up with that movie. That is another one like Fantastic Mr. Fox where is it's meant for kids, but there is adult content in there galore. You know, it's, like oh, absolutely. you watch that boat ride sequence and you it's can't you tell me like that is not meant for like hardcore uh, horror fans. You know? It's wild. Some wild stuff in that movie. It teeters in some dark territory for just like a moment where you're like, Jesus, like what's really going on in this factory? Um, <laughs> some slavery, you know, some uh, chocolate, to, some child abuse. Check <laughs> the layers and you're like, where are all these children going when they disappear? Why is Willy Wonka so upset at the end and he takes off his hat and he goes you on his lose. angry? Good he goes day, on his, sir. Yeah, why? You know, you start to question everything going on. Maybe there's, it's not so whimsical and, and fantastical once you peer back all the, peer, uh, peer back all the, you know? Well, just remember a little nonsense now and then is advised by the wisest men. I this think been, that's uh, uh, where we're going to end this fantastic Mr. Fox uh, recap. Stephen, it's been a fantastic time talking with you. As always, and... you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Philmar. <laughs> As always, you can follow uh, us on our fantastic uh, page that we have uh, somewhere in our minds and so hopefully somewhere in our <laughs> our souls and our beating hearts. Um, yes. so, it's out uh, there. Yeah. Join Jeez. us next week in Camp Ivanhoe when we explore Wes Anderson's teen angst dramedy, Moonrise Kingdom. Until next time. <laughs>